0: and welcome to the Second World Podcast. My name is Port Kelly. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at The Second Row. That is 2ND, not the word second. And this podcast is available pretty much on all podcasting apps, from Google Podcast, to Acast, to Apple Podcast, to Stitcher, to SoundCloud. It's literally everywhere. I'm back with another interview this week. And with me today is Brett Wilkinson, 183 caps for Connacht, 5 caps for the Irish Wolfhounds, and three tries between all those. Brett, thanks for coming on. How are you? How's life treating you?
1: Hi, Porik. Um, thanks for having me. And I'm uh, yeah, very good. Um, just uh, just here in Hong Kong at the moment, so um, some strange
0: times around, but, but doing good. Yeah, it is. It is a, definitely a strange time. How is life in Hong Kong? Like we all have our own different versions of a lockdown going on. What's it like over in Hong Kong at the moment? Um, yeah, we haven't
1: quite got a got a lockdown, but um, we've kind of hit our second spate of like spike in the coronavirus. So we've kind of gone through the first round. We've now hit the second round of it. So um, we've been told um, pubs and bars are shut, but we've been told we can't be in groups of more than four times, and obviously all rugby sees. So um, we're just kind of trying to tap in and keep in touch with players um, via Zoom calls and and kind of all just keep touching base with them really
0: yeah it must be tough going as a coach to kind of keep track of what everyone's doing when you don't have that day-to-day contact with them
1: uh, yeah it is tough but as i say it's um you know we've split guys up into groups and uh, we have a couple of coaches in our setup so they're touching base with uh with different groups um you know a couple of times a week um, the guys have their own training to do from home so um it's just about staying connected i know what
0: you mean we're like that with friends over here, just trying to keep in touch with everyone, just make sure everyone's sane as much as anything else.
1: Yeah, that's really, that's it really, just, you know, it's just, you know, if someone needs someone to talk to or just checking in with each other and making sure we're all all right at this time.
0: Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. If you don't mind, I think I was going to start at the start because yeah. you grew up, you grew up in South Africa and you moved to Connacht in 2006. How did you get into rugby? What was your first rugby memory?
1: Um, so, yeah, I went to school, obviously, in a, in a little town called Grahamstown in Eastern Cape um, and started playing rugby from the age of eight. Um, played all the way through school until the age of 18, and I left school, obviously, um, and then got a bursary to the University of Cape Town and uh, played there for four years. And then while I was there, I played with a, a player called Stephen Knup, who was at Connor kind of, for a little while. Um, and I got signed over as injury cover in the beginning really. And that's how I made my way to Galway.
0: Oh, interesting. I didn't I didn't realise it was injury cover at the beginning and well, it led to a eight year long career, like you were a pillar of that kind of scrum, like you were worth your Irish call up to the Wolfhounds. I thought you were gonna get another step further myself.
1: Yeah, it was just, I mean disappointing obviously not to get a get a full cap, um but have a hell of a prod to you know represented island day um and yeah it was a it was a good idea that Connacht. of um you know formed some bonds and some friendships with some with some special players so it was a good time really
0: and yeah and i remember speaking about this with michael swift before it's you oversaw some of the biggest changes in Connacht and galway in that anyone will ever have lived through
1: yeah i mean as I say, when I when I first got there, I mean, it was the old sports ground. There wasn't a stand on the other side, um, on the Clan Terrace side. Sorry, um, you know, we used to gym out a little gym in the in the offices in the building. Um, not really big uh, crowds came to games, and then you know, over the years, as our performances started picking up, and and the RFU started investing a bit more in us, um, we slowly grew, and you know. I suppose the years when we when we started to grow was the likes when you know the likes of Ian Kigley, Sean Cronin, Theon Kahn, you know these guys came down as, as, as fairly young players into Connacht and you know we kind of grew year on year from that.
0: The building blocks were really there, and you could start to see the academy kind of bringing in players as well at that stage. After a couple of years, that there was it wasn't just the main team that were developing; it was the full organisation.
1: Yeah, and, um, you know, that, that's the key, is, is that development side of it. Um, you know, under Nigel Carroll and Jimmy Duffy, you know, it takes a good few years for that whole academy system to start, um, you know, producing the quality plays that they did. But, you know, once they started producing those players, there's now, you know, there was a kind of a conveyor belt of players coming into that squad and adding a bit of depth. And as them, and of course, they were also, most of them were homegrown players, men from Connacht, so, which was good.
0: I say they all came in with a bit of a point to prove, you know, to, like as homegrown players, to show they're as good as anyone else.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I suppose, you know, the the whole thing at Connacht is, you know, you've probably seen over the years that, you know, you used to play with a bit of a chip on your shoulder. So, you know, young players coming through had, had every, everything to prove uh, coming from the West of Ireland, because obviously, you know, all the rugby was in Munster, Leinster and Ulster. And Connacht was kind of this, you know, team from the West who, kind of was a bit forgotten about at times.
0: Yeah, it was, but that, that chip served you well on so many occasions, like some great performances, great wins on your day.
1: Yeah, it did. Um, you know, there's a couple of good Irish derbies we had, and we beat Leinster, you know, a few times in my in my memory. Um, we beat Ulster once, so, you know, that was good. It was always motivating um, going out against, you know, the other three provinces, you know, Ulster, Leinster and Munster.
0: Yeah, they did. They all bring their own different challenges. What was the what, what were the differences in the teams that, from your point of view? Um, yeah, you know, Ulster and, and Munster were kind of kind of
1: similar in the way they played. They were very direct, very physical, um, and, and, and and took you on up front. Uh, whereas as Leinster used to move the ball around a bit more, and know, um, yeah, those were the, kind of the main differences in their games. But they were all three of them were really hard to play on their day. Uh,
0: and you were lucky enough to be in the sports ground for the Heineken Cup when the fireworks came to Galway. That must have been really special to kind of be involved in that.
1: Yeah, that was um, a real special time, I suppose, in Connacht's in kind of history because, you know, we toiled for so long to get into the Heineken Cup, um, you know, and, and to finally reach there, you know, all, all, all fledged back. Uh, you know, it was, it was a really, really special kind of time for rugby but then also the fans who'd been who'd been dying for for heineken cup rugby to be played in galway so you know it was a special special time to be involved in and to be involved in that heineken cup
0: and the thing is like it might have taken a long time to get there but you definitely showed you deserve to be there on the back of your performances maybe some results didn't go your way but you never stop fighting
1: yeah and i mean i remember that first year we you know we were so we came so close, but we're on the on the wrong end of results, and then you know to beat uh, to beat Harlequins at home was was something special, but you know we kind of fully deserved I felt to be there and you know had it been maybe we had a little bit more depth or you know a little bit more expected, it could have gone the other way, but I really feel um you know we fully deserved to be in that, and we were we weren't far off to to winning and a couple of big teams in that first year.
0: No, like the margins were really, really small, but it must have been challenging to involve involved in a team where you kind of go an extra player here, or an extra player there would have just made the difference, even to let people have a break every now and again.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was just that depth that we that we probably lacked. I mean, when we were playing, we weren't really thinking it's the extra player, yeah, extra player there. We were kind of, you know, digging in and, and giving it our all every weekend, which was, you know, our goal. And obviously, you know, we wanted to win really badly
0: no one could ever fault the effort that you showed week in week out um you played like every game with your hearts on your sleeves yeah well i mean that's what we you know right
1: at the beginning we just said we're going to play and give this a real crack and, and not be not be intimidated by anyone anyone and not be scared by anyone and you know not kind of go down wondering what if or you know what if this happened or what if that happened it was just giving everything giving you all every game almost playing like if that game was your last game of rugby you'd play um so, you know, that, that that was kind of the mentality we had going into it, not being afraid or intimidated by it.
0: Yeah, I get you. And I think that, that victory against Harlequins was, was topped only by the win against Toulouse, really, the year after.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that win in Toulouse was was one of probably one of my career highlights of the game to be involved in uh, from everything, from a build up, from, you know, having lost a good few games before that to then, you know, taking on the, on the Giants of Toulouse and beating them in um the home, home patch was just a
0: great feeling. I remember seeing the footage of the players at the end. I think there's a shot of you well I think it's you only throwing a pint a glass into the crowd just because 'cause you're celebrating that much. Well a plastic pint glass obviously.
1: I don't know if it was me, I actually can't remember but um <laughs> yeah it was <laughs> it was more um it more it was more just you know a relief too that you beaten. Know, but it's also the hard work you put in before that games don't always go your way but when you know they do it's hugely satisfying and when you put so much into something and get the result you want um it's just a really really good feeling you get satisfaction
0: yeah you could really see that sense of i don't want to use the term relief but that joy amongst you all that you've won that game. There really was a special moment amongst that 23, actually even the wider squad.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, because, you know, we shouldn't have won that game our, our backs were against the wall. Um, but we knew if we stuck to the game plan and how the coaches branded in the beginning of the week, we knew if we stuck to the plan, um, we'd come closer and give them a real run. I suppose we kind of grew into that game and then as the game went on, you know, we grew with confidence and we started scoring, we scored some points um, and we just grew from there and got bigger and bigger.
0: You scored some lovely tries as well, like, and, you know, yourself in the Scrum, the Scrum gave a good platform that day as well for for some of them.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was speaking as a front driver and as a coach, it all, it all starts up front and if you can get a solid platform to play off with the backs... um you know, puts you in great stead. And as you can see, we had the likes of, you know, Karen Marmion off the back, Dan Parks controlling things. And then, you know, you had the likes of Robbie Henshaw um, in the centres um, that uh, had a normal game that day.
0: Yeah, and Fionn Carr was just kept on scoring, tries for fun.
1: Yeah. yeah, he did, yeah.
0: <laughs> I, I know you're saying that was one of your career highs, but was there any other high moments you had across... Your eight years in Connacht, or even when you're still in the University of Cape Town, that just really stand out to you today. Um, yeah, there's there was a game against Toulouse. I mean, Toulon in the uh, what was it the
1: Challenge Challenge Cup? Then I know we lost, but that was a that was probably one of the biggest uh, days in Connacht kind of rugby up until before we reached the Heineken Cup. That was a really special day. Um, the Allianz packed out. just so many passionate Connacht um, kind of fans there. Was, Special, but then, you know, kind of also the the pros and the derbies. Um, you know, i Leinster a few times, Ulster, um, and then you know we won a couple of of uh, games away from home, um, which which was special too because you know we hadn't done that uh, for that time. So also, obviously, um, getting that A Cap Violent.
0: I uh, I I know I said at the top that you scored three tries. Do you remember the tries that you scored?
1: I remember the first one I scored for Island Day in Tonga up in Belfast. And, and for some reason, I was on the wing and there's a crossfield kick that got kicked to uh, <laughs> gathered by Dennis Fogarty, who popped it to me and I scored in the corner. But I don't know what the hell I was doing out there.
0: <laughs> I, I was scrambling ever to find video footage of that try because I was like, that'd been great to show, but I, I couldn't find it anywhere. There must have been any cameras on, on that day.
1: No, I think there were, but actually I couldn't find it anyway. It would be quite fun to watch.
0: Yeah, like you're not meant to be on the wing.
1: <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was probably bent over, tired anyway. <laughs> Lost big <people> for breath.
0: <laughs> and was there anyone that you really enjoyed playing with across your time? Who was the guy that you just really loved seeing on the field with you?
1: Um, Yeah, there are a few actually. Um. When I first started, off, there's you know Adrian Flavin who, who was hooked with me, um, and then Sean Cronin. I suppose we developed some some special bonds because you you know right in the middle of it together. Um, and then you know Mike McCarthy in the second row. Um, he was a special player. The fact that you know he could do the dirty work and the grunt, but then also had uh, the dynamism to play in the wider channels, which was something special for a big man like himself. And then You had someone like John uh, Muldoon who just had such a good, uh, calm head on him. Um, As a rugby player, was a very intelligent rugby player and just knew where to be at the right time was making those calls. Um, Those are all forwards, as you can tell. Probably (laughs) played in the forwards. But um, yeah, but then, you know, Robbie, Robbie Henshaw as well when he came through. I mean, for a young person, when he first came through and skills... And the rugby head he had on him was quite special, and there's no doubt you know where he is now. You could see that he was making a pretty he got
0: involved. Yeah, he's just seems to be naturally talented, on like between rugby and music and whatever he wants to say, I'd say turn his hand to. Yeah. But it really does say something that uh that there's two hookers on your list as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, both going to the props. You know, there's there's Jamie Hagan, Nathan Weiss, a few of new to mention, but. I suppose those are the guys you really you really kind of share special bonds with, really. And because you're at the cold face, you're relying on each other so much and people around you that you do really kind of make that special bond with them because you're going to almost against the cold face with them. So you pretty much have to trust them a hell of a
0: lot. Yeah, you do. And especially because the scrum changed so much over the years. You're all adapting and learning together. It's It's a different environment to the backs.
1: It is. I mean, it,
0: you see how it changed from
1: you know the early days from taking kind of a three meter run up from each other, and then it went to kind of a proud and set, which you just had this massive engagement to each other, and then it was the fine sets. So you know it's evolved a hell of a lot. But yeah, the backs wouldn't—they don't know much what goes on in there. So um, <laughs> we just kind of uh, we just kind of go about it and make our own friends up front.
0: What was that development of the scrum like? It, like, did it take? long to get used to all the changes or did you just have to get used to it as quickly as possible
1: yeah it was just it was just practice really when you look back at the scrums from a couple of years ago you don't know how they weren't going and um and i remember when the when the rule came in was uh, proud crowd find and said that took quite a lot of um getting used to but that's something we practiced in the and got used to it so it's just kind of hammering down some core basic skills around the scrumming and, um, and practicing in the preseason, so we ever never
0: feel for it. And, like, did you prefer the changes as they came through? Because the scrum, like, I really love the scrum, but this fascinates me. So anytime there's a change or an angle or a penalty, I'm, I'm watching the five different things to see who really was at fault first.
1: Yeah, it, uh, like, I was, I much preferred, um, scrum uh, when those was crouched by Um, Myself as a prop I used to battle with a massive engage to get my hips and my knees down to the ground. Whereas when I we're real close and we had a little bit of a short punch, I used to find that a lot easier and preferred it. So um I think these new rules are also good because it, it cuts around cuts out a lot of um the messing around. Um, I think if someone if a prop is cheating, it's a lot easier to see um and, and point out.
0: Yeah, I actually never thought of it that way. You know, there's more with the new law, there's more to it than just might is right. You can actually see what is going on a bit easier.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can see, I mean, when you're engaging from such short distance, you can see props and as they're engaging, which angles they're going on. A lot, the picture's a lot more clearer to see.
0: I, I know exactly what you mean. And just speaking of that, was there anyone that you really hated to see come up against you as a prop? Like, let's take the two separately. Is there anyone you hated seeing scrum against you and then just in general playing against you?
1: Um, Oh hate's a strong word, but um I oh, yeah, hate is no, a strong side. Of... <laughs> no, no, I'm <laughs> only messing one. But... No, I suppose every time uh, you know you come against a monster, I find BJ Boitzer quite a hard guy to scrum against just because of his his height. Um he was really a kind of squat low to the ground. Um he was a tough one to scrum against and then Adam Jones was also really tough. Um, found him a really tough scrum scrum against also just because of his height and his width. The Way they could get so low to the ground for a loose that's when a target can get low to the ground, that's when you can have a tough day. But those two stand off when you saw their name on the t-shirt, team sheet, you knew you're going to have to be on your metal that day coming once.
0: And was there anyone in the loose that if you saw them coming at you that you were like, but well, you just knew there'd be a nightmare to play against in the loose because they're two very different types of things?
1: Yeah, um, <laughs> there was. A guy who played, played for the Osprey, was a while back. His name was Philo Tiotia. Oh, yeah. He, he was a guy that used to hit extremely hard. <laughs> um, and Jerry Collins wasn't actually far behind in the late Jerry Collins. You saw them around. But, yeah, you're kind of running the opposite direction, but uh, they used to, they were big, heavy hitters. And then um, Duffy actually mentioned last week that Rav Fiesa was also another guy who you wouldn't think it, but used to hit really hard in the corner.
0: Yeah, like it's it's mad that you both have you know some of the same players that those guys have just really left an impact on you.
1: Yeah, um, as you think about the the amount of players you play against in your career, those two stick up, but they are I can't come to the top of my head, but they are other players that Sean O'Brien was another one that you saw him running towards you the ball, you chop know, down because when I just bumped you off. Yeah,
0: he's he's a wrecking ball. All right, it's. Was there anyone actually on the flip side that you enjoyed playing against, just that you knew, well, you'd have a good tussle with?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll go back to BJ um, e. um Probably the, the, the Irish part really John Hayes back in the day. Um, that, those, those derbies that you play in, those battles that you kind of do, go head to head in. Um, we used to go
0: hammer and tongs
1: at each other, but at the end of the game, you know, take have a beer together and just the best
0: ones yeah like there's uh, there's some really big names there in that list like it's you've had a incredible career especially in the scrum and sadly in 2013 that injury against Saracens that was kind of the end of it all can you tell me just that journey from the match to the announcement of retirement because that must have been tough
1: um yeah it, it was a really tough time in my life. Um yeah, there it was actually quite a while. they didn't actually know what was wrong with me for quite a while. Um, because uh, I pulled the ligaments between C1 and C2 in the back of my back of my neck, right at the top on my spinal cord. But they it only showed up once my neck was in flexion, that there was you know, there's a massive bowl there where the ligaments have been torn. But before that I just gone for kind of normal x-rays they didn't pick it up so for a good while they didn't know what was wrong with me but I wasn't playing or training or anything you know I kind of had these sensations in my body that I didn't, I mean, right. um, but yeah so you know it was I think it was I think two, two months um, and then I went and saw a surgeon in Dublin um, and he picked it up straight away and then you know he had no doubt straight away he told me um, there and then, that you know, that was the end I've had to retire. It was too risky to operate. And then, if you had to play again, it was just, it was just too much of a risk because it was so high up in yeah, my final cord. So, I suppose when you, when you look at it like that, you know, you kind of did actually quite lucky to be still walking and not paralyzed. It gave my kind of spinal cord a bit of a rattle. So, um, I can count myself lucky. Um, but yeah, it was a tough time around that time.
0: And how was the Connacht family uh, during that time? Because I remember seeing you on the sidelines with the camera, helping out the scrums for a while. Like you're always involved in some way.
1: Yeah, um, you know, as soon as you know, as soon as I knew it was it was career-ending and serious, I kind of knew I wanted to coach. So I tried to help out as much as I can. So you know, sat a bit with Dan McFarlane and helped him out from the scrum. Um, and I suppose that you know the players were really supportive and, you know, obviously my wife and my family were really good. And then, you know, also, you know, the kind of public and, and the supporters were really good too, so it was good to know that. But at the same time, no one really knows what you're going through. Um, you kind of put on a brave face when you see everyone, but kind of when you're at home by yourself is, you know, when it really hurts and when you really think about it. So, um,
0: yeah, but I suppose you know, at the time my
1: teammates, were family
0: it's, it is great they had so much support from family and friends. It's Like you said, I couldn't even imagine what you're going through. It's great to see that you came out the other side as a coach and, and stay in rugby.
1: Yeah, well, they, I mean, they say that the next best thing to play is coaching. So, um, you know, I kind of always had idea I wanted to go into coaching. So, you know, I'd, I'd done my, my, my badges before that. Um, something that really interested me. Man, how you get the best out of the players, and then the technical side of it. So, you know that transition, you know, took, took a few years, but happy now. Um, and I'm settled here yeah, in Hong Kong and coaching away, and obviously I coached in Ireland for. But
0: yeah, and you 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 played under a lot of different types of coaches, like from Bradley Elwood, Pat Lamb, and like you said, there you worked with Dan McFarland, who's now a coach in Ulster. Like you must have learned so much from all of them that you've been able to bring into your own coaching?
1: Yeah, of course, I mean, of course, you know, I'm my own coach now, but, you know, I have taken little bits from, from all of them, really, Um, and what kind of, see will suit me and the style that we, that I like to coach, really, and, and you just, you take those and you just add them to your toolbox, and it's never-ending, the learning curve for coach. I mean, the day you think you know it all, the day that um, you'll fail, so. It's just constant development, talking to other coaches, uh swapping ideas and that's you know, kind of how you develop as a coach, really
0: Yeah, and you like you went from Connacht kind of straight into Buccaneers and you gained success with promotion. That must have been a real boost to know that this is the right path for you.
1: Yeah, it was. I mean the first first year I joined Bucks was kind of
0: a bit of a rebuild year
1: for them. Um but we got close, we were one B and we got to a one 8 playoff but lost it. I think. In the second year once we kind of players knew what i was about and i knew what they were about kind of really came up with with a good game plan and a good structure um and really really did well that year um, it, was, it was it's good to know that you know when you see and i suppose as a coach you get your fulfillment out when you ask players to do things certain things and they do them and they work and you see them develop that's where you know i'd get my most of my satisfaction
0: yeah, like that was a, it was a great success, and it's uh I always like seeing the kind of clubs do so well because there are players coming from those clubs year on year out that will become internationals. So I can see it.
1: Yeah, I mean, AC is such a a big club, stooped in, in a lot of history. So you know, for a club like that to see them, you know, reach the heights of one again, to see the amount of people that. We're happy and it brought joy to, and also, you know, just the whole community was, was brilliant. And I suppose that's what Club rugby is all about. Just that grassroots that, you know, people are there because they love the club um, and the club's everything to them. So it's, it's just, it was a hell of a good day and a good, good weekend to celebrate.
0: I, I bet the celebrations went on long into the night and the rest of the month. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, they did, yeah
0: good <laughs> how did you then go from buccaneers to Hong Kong because that's not a um a normal switch
1: no it's not um you know I suppose there was a a guy who played a conor called Dylan rogers um and he he was playing over here in Hong Kong and you doubt that there could be a coaching opportunity over here in Hong Kong so believe it or not I mean they they they're fully professional they professional players but my role was kind of split um i first joined as, as, a, as a club coach who um you head coach of one of the top uh teams you play club rugby in hong kong um and then your role is also split you work for the union too so i was part of the national uh coaching setup as well so yeah that's how kind of all, all kind of manufactured
0: and what was the player skill set like when you landed did you um feel like you had to upskill many players or was there something a good base to work off?
1: Um, yeah, well, in terms of of, of the club rugby, it's actually it's actually a very quite a high standard of club rugby that's played over. You get players from all over the world, but the club I went into, um, the, they hadn't had a good few years. Um, it was kind of very much a rebuilding phase. So, yes, it was upskilling players um, massively, um, and then getting a buy-in and belief into into the way we wanted to play. And then obviously looking at recruitment going forward, the following year and recruiting good players in, which built really. Um, and then our second, second year with with HKU Sandy Bay, we we had a, a phenomenal year where we, where we got to a quarter final and made a final of the grand champs, won that. So you know it's it's good to see that progress from. From coming from a year where we came rock bottom in the comp to then winning at the following year was was quite satisfying. said quite satisfying too.
0: Yeah, I say you're able to draw from the your time in Connacht. You know, when because things didn't always go well when you're there, that you can kind of tell players like this can get better. There is light at the end of the tunnel, and they had you that you have that personal experience that they can draw from and learn from.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that you know the power of the mind is a a massive kind of can be a massive weapon. You have a vision and you have a belief, have a togetherness and a good team culture. Um and a team that's willing to play for each other and everyone knowing their roles exactly and understand what they're meant to be doing. And that means that there's clarity and I think you know that can go a long way into into getting results.
0: And you talk about that culture. Like it's different when you're a player to as your coach. How do you develop the culture for your team as a coach?
1: It's you know, first of all, it's, for me, it's getting to to know your players um, individually. Um, not everyone's the same, but it's genuinely caring for them and getting to know them, um, and having co- real honest conversations with them. Um, I think you know it starts there, and it's it's them caring for other players in the team, um, and then you know it's organising things off the pitch, really, um, where you can bond and you know get to know each other that much more. That you know, let let let's be honest. Rugby isn't a perfect game. There's going to be times when you're under the pump, and um, you know you have to go to that dark place. So the the more you can kind of simulate through training um, off the pitch stuff, I think that all that all builds to culture. Really.
0: And would you say that the the game over there now it's it's growing? That the popularity is growing. There's more people coming to matches, and you know that type of general sense that the game is on the up.
1: Well, it's definitely on the map in Hong Kong because um, the World Cup in Japan had a massive effect in Asia. Um, yes, when you see it, people are into on internationals, um, and also our club more and more people can watch, which, which
0: is a good sign. But the World Cup
1: was definitely had a massive impact
0: I was I was wondering that, actually, because I thought that the, um, the Sevens game would be help bringing in fans every year. So the World Cup had more of an impact. Um, I think for
1: awareness, you know, the the kind of World Cup awareness of Asia, uh, rugby in Asia, World Cup would have had more of a big, But the Hong Kong Sevens is huge, yeah, as well. It's an event every year that everyone looks forward to, and uh, it's probably
0: been ahead of Fifteens, but Fifteens has slowly got popular too. Yeah, like I'm, I like I love the se- I love Sevens as well, as well, but for me, Fifteens will always be my go-to. It- I saw like on your Instagram when Jordan Connor was over there. It must have been great to see him over there because he, he would have been in Buccaneers when you were there.
1: Yeah, he was. Um, I, I coached Dorney for two years at, at Bucks, so it's just great to see him doing so well and it's, such, it's everything he deserves. I mean, what he was doing in AIL when we were there was something pretty special. I um, kind of knew that um, you know, if he kept focused and kept the head down and kept going, he would make it all the way to the top. Oh, he's on the world stage doing what he does so i'm delighted for him that he's doing so well
0: he's definitely a character i'd say because you see him on instagram he just likes to have a laugh
1: yeah he's a very um yeah he's a bit of a character he's a very um uh, happy-go-lucky fellow, but um you know once once on game mode and game day he actually uh there's a bit of a serious side to him, so there's, there's two sides to him, but you mostly see um, the happy-go-lucky and the, the joke kind yeah. of side
0: to him. No, I, I know what you mean. Um, I remember you said in the past that you would like to return to Galway sometime in the future. I'm not getting out of Hong Kong anytime soon, don't worry, but what would be <laughs> what's the future for, for you going forward, especially as a coach, and where would you like to go? What what's the, What's the ideal pathway
1: yeah i suppose for me it's you know, i've got another year here in hong kong um but um my wife's from ireland so you know i would like to get back there someday um but you know i think for me now you know i'm still kind of a young coach so would, the next step would be you know, kind of a full assistant role towards coach role um you know professional level obviously and uh you know going forward i think you know further down the line i think you know you'd look at head coach role but that's
0: you know for me i really need a lot of experience you have that other the year in hong kong will you go looking for those roles once you feel you're ready for them
1: no, i think it's what's always. you know it's just keeping your options open is a good thing um but also you are know, not um taking off yeah you know, there's obviously you know there's loads to be done here yeah, hong kong are in you know, a cycle for the next world cup that they're going to try and qualify for. So, you know, there's pretty important stuff going on here too.
0: Yeah. Would there be anyone that in four years time that you think will be on that Hong Kong team and we will see in the next world cup? I mean, there's
1: a, yeah, there's a guy called uh, Luke van der a guy from South Africa. Um, he's a, a big South African number eight. who likes to carry. He's pretty heavy hitting. Um, also a new sport called josh Darling from new zealand who's kind of in the same mold um so um yeah there's fly off glenn hughes um who who, who sure will be involved going forward he used to play in the uk so there are good few names there joy will see coming through you know hopefully we can get to a record dodge and qualify for, for the next world
0: cup that'd be that'd be great well whenever rugby starts up again you can get focused on that again
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah well that's that's the thing it's it's just uh, it's it's when when rugby's gonna get started up and when we can get back training um, so there's, there's so much unknown at the moment so yeah we just have to wait and see and wait patiently for once the tool calms down
0: that's it uh right. i'm gonna let you get back to the rest of your evening. Well, your evening in Hong Kong, the yeah. rest of my day here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And thanks very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks very much, Boris. Thanks for everything. Thanks again, Brett, for coming on. It was really a pleasure to chat to someone who is steeped in conch history like you are. Don't forget, if you enjoy this podcast, like, share and subscribe so more people can listen to it, more people can hear the stories. So until Friday, where I'm back with ushing for the lockdown, and next Monday when I'm back with another interview stay safe stay home and look after yourselves everyone.